Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. I am in Malibu today with Adam Skolnick. Adam, welcome to the Robcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, <laughs> uh, especially right here. We are on a cliff uh, at, is it Big Doom? Yes. In, and then Little Doom is just south along the water. We're in Malibu on top of a cliff overlooking the ocean. The Robcast is on location, friends. And uh, Adam has written this book called One Breath that... Uh, I was trying to think where to start, and I was thinking we should start with freediving. And as a huge fan of freediving, could you just, first off, what is the record right now for freediving underwater by a human being? Let's start there. So there are three adept disciplines in competitive freediving. So there's, you know, I, I usually qualify. There's freediving, there's competitive freediving. Yeah. And so this book uh, talks about both of those and, and describes them. But in competitive freediving, there are three disciplines. There's one called constant weight which is where you use a monofin. It looks like a dolphin's tail. And that's the deepest diver, obviously, because you can use, you can use a, a fin and you wear some weights around your, around your waist, around your neck. Whatever weight you bring down, you have to bring back up. And no tank. No tank. No air, no oxygen. One breath. One breath. Yeah, the oxygen tank are your, is the air in your lungs. And how far down are human beings going into the so ocean? So the record is uh, set, was set by a Russian freediver named Alexei Molchanov, and it's 128 meters. <laughs> Which is, you know, well over 400 feet. Human beings are swimming with no tank 400 feet down into the ocean. And how long, what's the longest somebody has been underwater? So the longest would be more uh, static. That's, that's called static apnea, yep. where you go face down in a pool. And that record is uh, nearly 12 minutes, 11 minutes, and 56 seconds. Human beings are holding their breath underwater. For 11 minutes, 54 seconds, excuse me, yes. For 11 minutes and 54 seconds. That's right. So whenever I talk to people about freediving, like this is what human beings are doing, people are like, that's, that's not possible. Right, because, and, and yeah, because you, basically there's a lot of reasons for that. Mostly I, mostly, I think it's because people have all tried it, right? We've all, growing up, we take a deep breath and we try to hold our breath underwater while our parents time us or while we try to time us or we try to beat our friends and, and, that, and yeah. that's static apnea. So we've all yeah. done that. And 31 and, seconds is like the coolest, oh, yeah. coolest kid on the block. If you can get 30 seconds, that's, that's something. And then we've also held our breath and tried to swim from one end of the pool to the other. And that's dynamic. That's a discipline called dynamic apnea. That's also a pool discipline with fins. Dynamic, no fins. You do the same thing in a breaststroke. Um, and then the other two competitive depth disciplines are free immersion where you pull down along a line down to depth and then pull back up wearing no fins. And then there's constant weight, no fins, constant no fins, and you just do a, a modified breaststroke down and back. And those are, the, those are the six disciplines in competitive freediving. And I think the reason people can't fathom it is because we've all tried it. And we know, like, when we take our breath and we go down, we're, you know, within 20 seconds, we're like, our, our you know, monkey brain is like, whoa, wait, you right. know, I need, I need right. air. But really what, you're, what that is more than anything is a, a, a response to the carbon dioxide buildup. It's a response because you're not fully relaxed when you take your breath, your heart rate's too high. So there's a lots of things that, you're do, that we don't do that the competitive freedivers do that allows them to be more relaxed at depth and stay down longer and longer, and then they just maximize it. And um, basically what, what none of us knew and what these competitive freedivers do know is that we all can tap into something called the mammalian dive reflex. Which is that is, also called the master switch? 
Yeah, that's also the master okay. switch. Let's yeah. talk about that because yeah. that to me is one of the most fascinating things I've stumbled across in years. Yeah, yeah. So the mammalian dive reflex is something that seals, dolphins, whales, marine mammals use. And basically what happens as you go down and as you, as you take a dive, uh, as they take a dive, and the same thing happens in humans, there's certain physiological responses to the pressure of depth because at the surface, we're at one atmosphere. That's the kind of the, the, the measurement of pressure here mm -hmm. at the surface. As you go down to 10 meters, you're now at two atmospheres. And what happens then at, at 10 meters, at two atmospheres, your lungs are now half their normal size. At 20 meters, you're at three atmospheres. They're a third of your normal size. And as you go down, your lungs start to squeeze down. And so what happens is the blood starts to get shunted from your extremities, from your arms and legs, and it fills the, uh, the capillaries in, in your core and fills that vacuum with blood. And as you keep going deeper, that happens, and your heart rate plummets to half your resting heart rate. And so if you're talking about elite athletes like these competitive freedivers are, we're talking about heart rates now going from in their 50s to in their 20s and 30s. And that's like, <laughs> you know, Tibetan monk kind of stuff in the laboratory. That's, yes. that, that's where they are. And so these kinds of responses to pressure and, and also the partial pressure of oxygen goes up, which means that the oxygen that you have with you the brain detects it as being more th than adequate to keep you conscious. So you're not going to black out as you go deeper and deeper and deeper. Your heart is going slower, so you're not using your oxygen at the same rate. And so all of these things conspire to allow you to go deeper, and you just have to switch. That's where James Nestor, I think, came up with the master switch. Yeah. And yeah. so that's what the master switch, you just have to switch in your brain. Instead of being scared, you have to surrender and relax. Um, and, and that's what these competitive athletes do, but they also have learned how to maximize what I've just described. My, uh, having done, by the way, there's a seal out there. Do you see it right <laughs> past those paddle boarders? I'm not surprised. It's just swimming around, checking things out. I see them out there. <laughs> hey buddy. <laughs> um, I, I love like, I'm like AYSO beginner level free dive, you know, like, yes. Oh look, a shell on the bottom in 17 feet. Uh, but my friend Dave, big shout out to David van der Veen. Um, but as soon as we started freediving together, he'd be like, no, you're, you got to relax. Mm. And I, cause I would be like, uh, trying to get the biggest gulp possible. Like, <gasps> yeah. and he'd be like, no, 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 no. You got to You got to think about the other direction. Cause he would just be like, I can go down now. And then he would just disappear and yes. he could go, go forever. And he'd be going under these tunnels and he, um, but the, the most, counterintuitive thing to me was the more you relax not like <gasps> this big dramatic intake right the more you just glide into the water and you can stay down well there's stages to it right so uh what competitive freedivers will do is they'll sit they'll, they'll lay down and relax for about 45 minutes before even getting in the water and they want they start they want that baseline to be as as already they want that heart rate to be at a really low rate before they even start. Yeah. Because then what is half their resting heart rate is even lower, right? And so they're trying to become more oxygen efficient before they even get in the water. Got it. And so if you're doing what, what we might do out here, um, what freedivers will do is they might relax and breathe uh, kind of like a yoga student would breathe in class. And they'll breathe from their belly and they'll take long, slow inhales and exhale twice as long and twice as slow because if you do that, your heart rate goes down. And then they'll take a breath and go down. And so, yes, he's right in that you, the more relaxed breathing, the better. If you just take a big breath like, 
you know, like that, <laughs> right, right, you know, right. like your heart rate just spikes. Right. And so then, then it's harder to, to be relaxed underwater. Okay. This mammalian, this mammalian reflex. Dive reflex. Yes. Dive reflex. Yeah. Master switch. What does this say about our evolutionary roots? If human beings have, we have these latent dormant capacities yeah. to go underwater for 10 minutes. Yes. What does that say about where we come from? Well, I think um, the way I look at it is is that free diving has always been here, and in some cultures, it was literally how they fed themselves. Yeah. It still still is. You know, whether it's because they're catching shellfish or they're fishing, spear fishing, whether it's collecting sponges or pearls that they can sell in the marketplace. There's whole cultures that were built around the sea, and a, a lot of seaside cultures from Polynesia to Africa to you know Japan and Korea, and all the way down the line Mediterranean, of course. Um, there's spear fishing is just a part of the fabric of life there and has been for millennia. Yeah. Even before that, the Greek and Roman freedivers would set up these kind of underwater barricades, like these early Navy SEAL teams, you know? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And so it's just been a part of human life. And I think that the more urbanized we get, the more disconnected we get from, yeah. from having to collect our own food and that kind of thing, we lose some of these skills. So I agree. I mean, I think it's been in the human uh, DNA forever. Uh, and so I think it is something we can all tap into. I know it is because I've seen, you know, you can see hobbyists go from uh, diving, like you're saying, 20 feet, uh, or myself, who who wasn't really free diving for depth at all. In, in three, four days, I got to 100 feet. Did you really? Yeah. And that's, <laughs> and that's level two. That's level two free diving. And you can take that level two course in, in places all over the world now. And uh, so that's the course. And, and if you learn these tools and you learn how to relax and be comfortable, you can get to 100 feet. And that's, you know, so it's possible. So your person in average shape listening to this podcast with m with some training and safety and all that can go 50, 70, 80, 100 feet. Yes. It's not out of the question. It's not out of the question. You could go beyond that. But, uh, you know, one great freediving instructor, a guy named Kirk Kroc, um, who started a, a school called Performance Freediving, uh, and he's a great teacher. And he says, he likes to say, if, if, if I could just unplug people's brains, every human being has the potential to go to 60 meters on one breath and hold their breath for over four minutes. <laughs> but the problem is the brain, right? And so that presents real problems because the brain's the control center. So the problem is that we don't relax. The problem is that we do get scared. And, and, and so when we do that, we su suck up our oxygen, we use, burn through our oxygen stores. Maybe we won't be able to equalize and you know, equalize the pressure in our head. So a lot of things get in the way. A lot of obstacles might, might come up. So you can't get there. So your brain, which keeps you alive and is generally the command central of everything, in free diving, you are at some level having to tell the brain, just take a seat there for a minute, we're going to be fine. You have to kill the lizard brain, right? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah that evolutionary thing and, and say, listen, we're going we're gonna we're gonna, to we're gonna push that limit. And it's not safe, obviously, I mean, for your listeners, even if you're in average shape, you need to have... I would never advocate doing that alone. You need right. to have someone watching your back because if you do push your limits, you can black out. And if you black out alone in the water, you're going to die. And so that's how 100 yeah. spear fishermen die every year. Not because they're pushing their limits so much alone, uh, just, just pushing their limits. It's because they're alone. And if they black out alone and they're weighted, they'll sink and, no, and they'll die. And so that does happen. So free diving, uh, free divers and competitive free divers and free diving instructors will tell you that they want to teach every spear fisherman uh, these principles that they teach in their class. And number one is one, one up, one down. Someone's at the surface watching whoever's down. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so 
how did you, because you've written for Lonely Planet. Yeah. You've written for New York Times, Playboy, like everything. You've written all across the spectrum. Yes. All sorts of magazines, travel. Uh, you were telling me you met Liz Gilbert, our mutual friend in Bali. Yes. <laughs> so you've been all over the world writing travel guides. What got you into free diving and writing about it? And what launched this book? So uh, the, the, the short version is uh, I was in Kauai in 2013 doing a Lonely Planet travel guide. Excuse me, 2012 doing a Lonely Planet travel guide. Um, I've done about 30 of those. And, uh, and you go to an area and then you just... I'm like a door-to-door observer. I would go and I'd see all the restaurants, check out the hotels, check out the beaches, talk to local people, figure out the best places to go. Like, so, you and know, then write about it. And then I'd write about it in, in, in these, these kind of best-selling travel guides. And so I was there doing that job. And while I was out there, um, earlier that summer, um, I'd hurt my back and I couldn't run anymore. And so I'd gotten into open water swimming. And so I was out there and I was loving it. And... Um, I heard about a story about the big chemical companies growing genetically modified corn on the west side of Kauai in these old uh, defunct sugar plantations. And so, and I heard there was some fallout from some of these operations and it was affecting a small community there in lower Waimea, Kauai. And so I, you know, I saw a story there. It was kind of this like Aaron Brockovich type story. So I moved back to, to LA. My, um, I had split up with my now ex-wife at the time. And so it was kind of a, I was in a transition place. And so I decided to move to Kauai to be in warmer water and to and explore this story. And so I did that. And the person who came out to photograph that story is a woman named Leah Barrett, who was a collaborator of mine. And she is a, a great, great underwater photographer, uh, one of the best in the world. And, um, but she also does some great stuff above the surface. And anyway, she had just come from the Caribbean Cup, which is an elite uh, free diving competition. And she'd seen a guy named Nicholas Mavoli, a free, American freediver, just hit 100 meters, become the first American to 100 meters on one breath. Oh. And she said, you know, we should be covering this sport. And so in a roundabout way, through that GMO story, I got connected to the New York Times. And then fast forward to November, and she and I went to cover uh, Vertical Blue, which is the top freediving competition in the world at in the Bahamas at a place called Dean's Blue Hole. Which it's is, that like just hole that goes right down. It's like picture a beautiful white sand beach. Um, surrounded by with turquoise water, turquoise shallows everywhere, and then in the and then to your left, instead of turquoise shallows, a big well of inky dark blue, three steps from the sand. What so made it? It's this sinkhole in the middle of this limestone. You know, it's porous <laughs> limestone. So all around the Bahamas. And how deep is it? And it goes to 200 and tw- 202 meters, the deepest of its kind in the world. Wow, the pictures of it are amazing. Oh, it's spectacular. Surrounded by limestone bluffs in this, in this little cove. And all around it is turquoise water because it's shallow. And here's this inky, inky, dark blue hole. And so, um, so we went there to cover that, just a niche sport for the New York Times. And then uh, within a few days, Nicholas Mavoli, that same guy that Leah had told me about, um, he died you know, right in front of us. Where were and, you when he died? Uh, I was in the water. I was in the water. I was watching his dive. I was in the water, and I was 10 feet away. Leah was on the platform, and he came up, and he came up under his own power. He didn't black out right away, which is how most people would black out after a free dive. Mm-hmm. Usually, you've pushed yourself so hard, and in his case, the dive didn't go as planned. He spent 
almost a minute underwater longer than he'd anticipated, yet he still came up under his own power. He still didn't black out until almost a full minute later after he'd risen up, and then they couldn't bring him around. And that kind of blackout they'd never seen before in competitive freediving was the first of its kind, and he was the first athlete ever to die in the history of competitive freediving. And so when that happened, all of a sudden this niche sports story that was going to run, you know, in a couple of weeks or whatever became a breaking news story. And all over the world for a couple of days. And uh, when you see that, when you see something like that happen, you know, I've been in life and death situations a couple of times, or at least reported on people who had been. And when you're, when you're dealing in that kind of territory, uh, you, it's, you, it's, it's not easy to forget uh, that story. And you don't really want to. So he comes to the surface. Yes. And did they immediately know there was a problem? He came to the surface, and it, for a minute, it looked like he wasn't in distress. Well, not for a minute, but for a few seconds, it looked like, okay, he's just breathing. He's just Because you, you have to do a signal and an I'm okay. So, yeah, so he came up, and so to, for a free dive to, to count in competitive free diving, you go down, you come up, and you have to, within first 15 seconds of surfacing, clear your, mat, your, clear your face of all equipment. So in his case, it would be a nose clip because he didn't dive with goggles. Or if you did take off the goggles, you have to take off the goggles. Then you have to um, make the okay sign and say, I am okay, within 15 seconds. All while you're reoxygenating as well because you're in oxygen debt. And so he came up and he couldn't do those three things. So he didn't get a white card. He got a red card for the dive. Um, but beyond that, he seemed to be fine. He was holding on to the, to the line, and he looked to be breathing on his own, um, but he wasn't reoxygenating. And by the time people realized there was a problem, he was already kind of falling back into the arms of a safety team. And um, then he blacked out, and you know, blood came seeping from his mouth, um, which obviously indicated a lung injury. And uh, they never brought him around. And so it was unclear why. At the time, it was unclear why. Mm. Um, I do go into some detail about that. Yeah. Uh, but... Yeah, so that became the story, you know, the first to die in these comp. Even though in 30, over 35,000 competitive free dives, and he was the first ever to dive, ever to die after a, free, a competitive oh. free dive. So it's a, it's a sad story, and um, you don't forget it. And so about a month after those stories ran, I started to contact his family just to learn a little bit more about him. And that's when I realized he was kind of this Christopher McCandless type character from yes. Into the Wild. Yes. And he was, he was just a loving authentic human being who just didn't couldn't find his way and you know couldn't find his his passion his bliss and and just happiness uh in this kind of commoditized society yeah and he was always looking for more he was always adventuring always thirsting for something more authentic just like mccandless but doesn't mean he didn't have joy because he did and he was an incredible young man um and the more i learned the more i saw that 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 there was more to his story than just how he died. And so I started to look into it. He's riveting. Thanks. In the, in the book, yeah. the way that you tell us about him, he, he uh, you're right, he, he doesn't fit. The modern world is too small or too boundaried or something. Yeah. He's just not satisfied by what a lot of us are satisfied with. He, he, was, he was always hungry for more. Um, you know, if you follow his life, it kind of like, it's almost like he's like the Zelig of modern American history in certain ways. You know, like he grew up uh, in, in the 90s and 
in Florida and then comes up to, to Philadelphia right at the cusp of the GOP National Convention in 2000 yeah. and ends up in surrounded by activists that had been in Seattle for those WTO yeah. protests, which <laughs> yeah. is kind of, if your listeners remember, you know, obviously everyone remembers Occupy Wall Street. This was kind of predating Occupy, but it's the sure. same idea. And so he was part of this uh, movement protesting the, genic- the, the, the GOP convention in Philly. Um, so he was there and that was kind of a big story. And then he goes from there to Brooklyn and starts living in Williamsburg right after 9-11. Um, he's living in Williamsburg before Williamsburg is the thing. You know? Second wave gentrification or something, second, whatever they call second it. Second wave. He was, you know, <laughs> was still, you could still get cheap lofts. You know, yeah. He was dumpster diving for food. He and he was, starts acting. And he starts acting and he writes and, and he writes and stars in his own film with his uh, girlfriend who was the director of that yes. film who he, who he lived with in Brooklyn. And um, and so then, you know, you fast, so you, you have all these kinds of set piece things, and then he starts working in production, and he ends up working on a show, um, a c- comedy show, yes. uh, starring, you know, this up-and-coming comedian from the D.C. suburbs named Dave Chappelle, and he's on the entire run of the Chappelle show. And he's Chappelle the show. one building the props. He's building the props. Dave Chappelle's using. That's exactly right. So, and, you know, that's a huge show. And so he, so all of, you know, you could kind of see these amazing points that we all know in culture, American culture, and he was along the along for the ride and you keep when i was working through the book reading through i'm thinking but somehow this guy is going to end up going underwater longer than human beings have gone underwater somehow we're going to get there yeah yeah well he had that potential i mean before he was 10 years old he was holding his breath for three minutes you know he was his his uncle brought him lobster diving when he was 10 and, you know, even before that, when he was one and a half years old, his grandmother kind of was hanging up laundry and the family dog pushed him in the family pool and he ends up at the bottom of the pool and she's looking around for him and there he is and, you know, big smile on his face, his eyes. And she said, you know, that's when I knew you'd be a fish later in life. She told him that. And so he always had this capacity, he always had this yearning for the water. And even when he was in high school and he was kind of, he, he got into BMX and he was, he was, yeah, that's the other thing. He was into BMX and he was kind of trying out for the X Games at one stage yeah. too. So he, he, he was always a gifted athlete. He had a high pain tolerance. He was a tremendous athlete, and uh, he always was. So we're talking about someone, he had some yearnings like McCandless had, but he was also just a naturally gifted athlete. And he, you know, even William Truebridge, who holds two of the three depth records in competitive freediving, you know, he, he told me that, you know, he was fully expecting in a couple of years for Nick to be competing for world records. Wow. Now, as a... As a, as a journalist and activist and traveler, how do you, like you get an idea like this, like you see him die and you're like, there's more of a story here. Then you just follow the, like you just get on airplanes and stay in hotels and eat bad food and get rental cars and you go all over the world hunting down the story, right? Yes. Are you ever, are you ever somewhere with a hotel bill, a food bill, a plane bill, and a rental car bill, and you're like, I'm in the wrong, this, this story's dead here. Um, you know, once it gets to the point where there's those kinds of bills, um, usually I, I know I've already been on a story, so I didn't, okay. I didn't I, um, but, but often what I'll do is I'll find a story and I'll try to, I'll try to find a home for it. Um, but I will have to front oh. expenses. So in this yeah. case, in this case, I did how a lot of uh, nonfiction books are, are done. I, I did some preliminary research and wrote a book proposal yeah. and was able to get a publisher on board before I started chasing the freedivers around. But just in general, I think the idea of me on the road, you know, for, since 2007, I've been on the road nine months a year. 
until this year. Really? Yeah. So eight, nine months. So that means a lot of you know energy spent doing exactly what you're saying. Um, I've never, I haven't had in that period of time ever. I've never, I, you know, it's very rare where I'll get onto a story and I'll be like, wait, there's no story here, and I have to pay all these, all, all these bills. Yeah. But, um, but you do still get drained because you're not home, because you're not healthy, and all of yeah. those things are true. I mean, I just think about all, and for listeners, like how many times we read a magazine piece, and it's interesting, and then you go back through the piece and you're like, wait, they're in five different locations doing nine different interviews. They're having, like, how much went in to this 4,000-word yeah. piece in whatever magazine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, it's, it, I think the hardest part is finding a home for certain stories. You know, when I, co- I do cover human rights stuff sometimes. I try to cover it as much as I can. They're hard to sell. Uh, that's the hardest Why is that? part. Um, well, I think that if, you know, if you're, if you're telling a human rights type story, like, for instance, you know, I've, I've told some stories in, in East Myanmar in the hill, hill tribe zones that used to be dominated by a military dictatorship. And there was humanitarian, right, uh, humanitarian abuses in those areas for years and years, for decades. And so, you know, a lot of magazines, glossy magazines want to know, how does that relate to Americans? How can Americans relate to that? You know, those are like newspaper type stories that you yeah. can, if you're a staff writer, yes, that's fine. You can sell that. But if you're like me, who looks for unreported, uh, underreported stories, because I'm not a staff writer, I need to find the underreported stories and, and make that more relevant. Um, that becomes a challenge. And sometimes the editors are right. You know, there's, you know, it's, it's a sad story, but does that make that the right story to tell? But of course, for me, I think anytime we can bring attention to environmental issues or humanitarian abuses, um, I think they're always good stories. So I'm always looking to try to tell them. Where, um, where right now, what injustice is most underreported right now? Right now, I think the most underreported story uh, is marine plastic pollution. I think it's the second to only climate change in terms of environmental catastrophes. There are literally trillions and trillions of tons of plastic in the ocean. This Every- is that gyre. The, there's, the size so there, of Texas? Is that right? True? So there's, there's five gyres. So yeah, so there's something called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is this big gyre in the North Pacific. Um, and basically what a gyre is are these wind and water currents that take all this junk that's in the ocean and, and bring it into, the, into one of these five vortexes in the ocean, marine vortexes, vortexes called gyres. And so the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is the size of Texas and it's swirling with plastic. But we it's think the size of, of Texas. Yeah. It's the, the size of Texas. The size of Texas. But we think of that and we think, okay, it's often reported that, okay, so that there's this big landfill in the middle of the ocean that's the size of Texas and it's like swirling with all this garbage that you might see in a landfill. But in reality, what that means is plastic has been brought there and then it gets broken down by the salt water and the sun and exposure and it gets to plankton-sized plankton pieces of microplastic. They're like plankton-sized. That's the lowest it'll ever break down. Plastic never goes away. It's not like metal or paper or, or uh, glass, which will go away and go back into the environment in a benign way. Plastic is always there. It's attracting toxins and it becomes, it bioaccumulates toxins. Little fish eat it. Bigger fish eat those fish. We eat the bigger fish. It gets into the food chain. Um, and, you know, we see whales dying with bellies full of plastic. We see birds dying with bellies full of plastic. And it just keeps coming. This plastic keeps coming because a very small percentage of plastic can be recycled. And if you go into any supermarket, you will see uh, single-use plastic everywhere that can never be recycled. And it's just a bad idea that has just won't stop. 
and it's and it's out there. So and you know, basically the way Five Gyres is an organization I'm an ambassador for, and Five Gyres um, studies microplastic pollution and advocates for changes in laws to prevent it from reoccurring or to, and, and to finally end it. And uh, what they like to say is there's a smog of microplastics in the ocean that in these gyres, some of it sinks, it gets redistributed all over the world in these underwater currents. We can find it in Arctic ice cores. We find it in deep sea sediments. It is literally everywhere. And that is, to me, the most unreported, underreported catastrophe. I've, I've reported on it, but... And there are five form. of them. And there's five of them. Have you seen all five? No, I've been to the North... Personally, I've been to the North Atlantic Gyre. I was on expedition last year from the Bahamas to Bermuda, and we went through, and we were in some of the most beautiful blue water you've ever seen in your life. I was with professional surfers, the Malloy brothers. I was with Jack Johnson, Kimi Werner, is a really gifted uh, spearfisher woman, one of the best in the world, the best uh, woman in the world at it. And we were all there with with some uh, scientists and activists researching this, and we were in this most beautiful blue water we've ever seen, and we'd pull this uh, trawl behind us at a low speed, and we'd come up with bits of plastic. You can't even see it. It's like you think you're in paradise, but it's oh, there. Oh, wait, so if, we, so if you're out in the ocean and it's the size of Texas, you can't see it. Some of it you, you'll see, but some of it will be microplastics. So it's just when you put a net or, or yes, a and you trawl through down. it. Yeah. <sighs> it's, like plas- it's like plankton. And how would you clean it up? You know, to clean it up out of the ocean is almost impossible. There are some people that are out there with some ideas, and I'm not one to say whether it'll work or not. Um, but the real only way to end it is to go further upstream and, and stop. stop the manufacturing and sale of it. Yeah. And so what that means from a consumer standpoint is we might say from now on we're not going to use straws. So we will ask, we will preempt the straw at the dinner table or at the bar, wherever you are. Um, we will bring our own water bottles. We will bring our own bags, all those kinds of things. But really, the only way to end it is to have co- governments put place laws put laws into place that will end the manufacture and sale of single-use plastic. Now, there were some successes last year in California, and then a few weeks later at at the federal level, we banned microbeads, which are those plastic beads that are in toothpaste and scrubs and all over the place. And now they're banned from sale, and you won't won't see them anymore because the government stepped in. So we need to do that for all single-use plastic. And Five Gyres was was one of the people involved, one of the organizations involved in that advocacy. And we just need to do that for everything for plastic wrapping, for all single-use plastic. Right. And then it, once we do yes. that, though, once we do that, it won't be in the system anymore. Right. And it'll be over, and then at some point, like 50, 60 years, an archaeologist will go to the Arctic ice core, and they'll pull it out, and they'll see plastic. And be like primitive. They'll be like, we're the Plasticine Age. Barbaric. We are the Plasticine oh, Age Not right the now. Axial Age, <laughs> or the, but the... Pla- the Pixel Age. <laughs> now you, uh, I mean, your connection with the ocean, you swim out here. I do, I do. Yeah, I'm out here open four ocean or five swims. days a week. Yes, open ocean swims. And uh, what's the most unforgettable encounter you've had out here? Um, a few weeks ago, we had four massive gray whales swimming around us for about 30 minutes. Uh, at, <laughs> around, not at, just in a straight line, but Just around. swirling all around us, you know, like within a few feet of us. And you see their spines are like underwater dragons. You know, maybe I've been watching too many, too many Game of Thrones. <laughs> Game of Thrones. But it's like this prehistoric beast. And they're just, uh, you know, you, you were describing it. You should tell them how you describe it because, um, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. My wh- thing about whales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time I've been in the water with a whale, something that big. First off, the blowhole's incredibly loud. Which right. I didn't know until the first time I was up close to one. Yeah, and we, we were at this range so close to them that with the blowhole, we would see the rainbow prism in the, in the vapor. 
That's how close we were. Oh. Oh, it was just unbelievable. But you were saying something like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's like this, this, this. That a whale is so huge, it taps into something primeval in you, something primal, and there's a fear like this. I've never been up close to something alive that's this big. So there's this terror, but then there's also, it doesn't have any intentions to hurt you. So there's also a, a kindness and a connection and that something that big that is benign in life, we see things that could really hurt us. And we see things that are kind, but you never see something that's both of those at the same time. Yes. I mean, rarely. Rarely. And that experience, I mean, the ancients talk about- You can get that with like elephants maybe too. Yeah, elephants, right. Yeah, yeah. There's like a, I mean, the ancient languages, they had specific words for like a holy reverence, some, uh, a holy fear, which in the modern age, we're so busy mastering and grasping and studying and poking and prodding things that to stand under them or in awe of them- um, to have something massive that could destroy you, but is kind is, uh, it's two things at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's what it does. It pulls the brain apart and makes you stop thinking for a while. Yes. yes. And you know, it's like this love and fear all at once. And it's, yeah. it's a beautiful thing. I think it is. And uh, uh, that description that you, that you told me this morning that, that you just said, that's, that's exactly it. And, oh yeah. Uh, and I was telling you about Kristen and I were out stand up paddling and a whale went under her board surfaced between us and then went under my board and I looked over at her and she just has these tears streaming down her face and we just sort of stood there for a while way out in the ocean like whatever you do don't say anything yeah (laughs) you ruin the moment yeah yeah and that's it you know so so how far do you swim here so we'll swim um, between one and two miles, depending on the day and the route we take and how deep we go out, you know, and, and, uh, but about between one and two miles. And then we'll, if we go around the reef, that's right here, um, we'll maybe do, you know, 15, 20 dives around the reef, checking out lobster or different fish or whatever we can find or hanging out with sea lions. And, um, and we just enjoy it, you know, because it, this, is, this is it. This is, it's become part of me now. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't live without it now. And, you know, growing up my whole life in Southern California, um, I would, I would see surfer friends that really needed it, but I didn't fully understand what they needed. But now, you know, I've been open water swimming for four years. If I, if I don't swim for, if I'm not in the water for a couple of weeks, I feel it in my bones and uh, I get it. And it's, you know what I think, I think the main thing for me is it's this, um, it's like the ocean is this perfect teacher and metaphor for life. Like the, the, if you get into trouble in the ocean, the thing to do is relax because yes. panic or fear or any of that's not going to help. Yeah. So you can be afraid, but you need to relax first. And I think that these, there's these lessons about relaxation, about flow, um, about acceptance that happen in the ocean that you can apply to your life. And I think that's what is one of the great gifts of it. That's beyond so the joy, well said. Beyond the joy and the fun. That's so well said. So the book, to wrap it up, here we go, folks. Here's the book, One Breath. Subtitle is Free Diving, Death, and the Quest to Shatter Human Limits. Oh, seriously, that subtitle is what I'm a connoisseur of titles <laughs> and a connoisseur of subtitles. That Free Diving, Death, and the Quest to Shatter Human Limits. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll shout out, we'll shout out me. Nate Roberson from Crown on that subtitle. Okay, Nate, when you came up with that, tell me you didn't give the universe a high five because that <laughs> is a fantastic subtitle. And I found the book, all, all of the, the facts and figures are sort of mind-blowing. And then Nick, so the book tracing Nick's story is really moving 
And then there's that one picture in the picture section of his last dive when he died. Yeah, yeah. So basically... That the... picture's so haunting yeah. and moving to me. It is, it is. Um, and we have pho- photographs from some great photographers in there, Leah Barrett, and that photo you just referenced is from Dan Verhoeven. And there's a, uh, another photographer named Logan Mock Bunting, who are three of the em- you know, preeminent photographers in the freediving world. And... Um, and uh, so it's great to collaborate with them. The book kind of starts with his death, and then it goes back through his life, and it then it 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 it, it moves back and forth from his life as he's growing up and then discovers freediving and the 2014 freediving season where the sport has to come to grips with the first person who's died and what that means for them as yeah. they push the limits. Because does that mean that now they're in more danger? They don't know. And what ties those two things together is the investigation into how Nick died and why he died. And that was led by a freediver, American freediver named Carrie Hollowell, who's also a physician. So those are kinds of the threads of the story and what, what, uh, what the book presents. It's so well done. I'm already looking forward to whatever you do next. Thanks, man. Uh, really appreciate really it. And uh, as far as Robcast recording locations, this is pretty sweet. <laughs> All right, my friends. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, there you go. Grace and peace, my friends.